Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. We're just going to look at two verses tonight, verses 29 and 30. This has historically been called the golden chain of redemption. And just to let you guys know, what I'm teaching you guys tonight, I made in a handy-dandy chart that I'm going to hand out at the end so that you can have the golden chain of redemption with you so you can understand this. So let's just read these two passages of Scripture, and then we'll talk about what these mean. So Romans chapter 8, verse 29. And by the way, remember last week we ended with verse 28, God works all things for good. And there were two qualifications of what it, what, who that was for, those who love God and those who have been called. And we, we qualified that as those are Christians, believers. Okay, and all things work for good. Does good necessarily mean that it works out the way we want it to work out? No, we just know that God is sovereignly working all things for our good. Now, if you look further back in the passage that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Paul specifically addresses suffering. So you could say God works out all things during our suffering. But as we look at today, the passage before us, God works out all things, and He's going to give us this great, these great biblical truths of what He's done for us in our salvation from eternity past to eternity future. Okay? So before we start, all of these verbs that we're going to look at are past tense verbs that God has done. God is the one that does all of these things, and so God is acting, God is doing these things. So you guys ready to start? Here we go. Romans 8:29 For those whom he foreknew he also I'm going to adjust that For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined he also called those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified so God has done some things to us, for us. And so here's, this is a chain, okay? The reasons why this is called the golden chain of redemption is because all of these things that God has done work together in a chain, meaning they can't be broken. So what, God, what starts the chain goes all the way through and it can't be unbroken. The way that the grammar works, the way this passage works, they're all links in a chain that link together. So God's doing the same thing for the same people all the way through. So let's just, there's, there's, there's five links in the chain. So here's chain number one. God foreknew a particular people. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew. Now, we can look at that word that God foreknew, those whom He foreknew, and we could say, well, God knew about these people in advance. Now, does God know about people in advance? Does God know everything? So what does God foreknowing us mean? Is that just God looks down and knows what we're going to do? God has knowledge? 
the word to know, okay, not just to foreknow, but to know, especially in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, the word to know is called yada. If you guys remember the um, Seinfeld, yada, yada. So it's yada, yada, yada means to know, to know. It's the Hebrew word to know. But that word to know, yada, can also mean to love in a very particular type of way. Really what, what it means when, when it says God foreknew us, it's not that God just God knew about us or God saw us in advance. It's God set his electing love upon us. He knew us and loved us in a special way. Some people make the mistake of looking at this as a noun instead of a verb. You guys tell me, is that a verb or a noun? What's the difference between a noun and a verb, okay? What's the difference? A verb is something God does. A noun is something that is. So the verb would be God foreknew. The noun would be foreknowledge. So does God just foresee what's going to happen? Yes, but what does this text say? Those. For those whom he foreknew. He foreknew a particular group of people called those. Okay, so all throughout this passage of scripture, there's this group of people called those. The those. And so we have to identify the those is us, believers. So it means more than just God knew in advance. It really means, if you trace that word foreknowledge, it means to love or to elect or to um, set covenant love upon someone in advance. So, for example, in Genesis, when it says Adam and Eve, Adam knew his wife and she conceived. Does that mean that Adam, he knew who his wife was, that Adam yadad his wife. He knew his wife. Okay. It really means he knew her in an intimate way. He had intimate love of her. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, when God says, I know you, we know God knows everything. But when God says, I know you, it's basically him saying, I know you in a particular special way because I've set my love upon you. So, for example, with Abraham in Genesis 18, 18 through 19, seeing that Abraham surely became seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he's promised. There in verse 19 where it says, I have chosen him, the word for chosen in the Hebrew language is the word yada, to know. I have known Abraham. Does that mean God did not know anybody else besides Abraham? Or did he know Abraham in a special way because he chose Abraham? Okay. Jeremiah 1.5. Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Does this mean that God just knew about Jeremiah before he was born? What, what did he do? He knew him. He consecrated him. He appointed him. He set his electing love upon Jeremiah before he was even born. Okay, Amos 3, 1 through 2. 
Hear this, hear this, the word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, God says, you're the only nation I've known on the whole face of the earth. Does that mean God didn't know about the Moabites and the Canaanites? You're the only nation that I've chosen, that I've known in a particular way. So, when it, when it says God foreknew us, it's not merely that God takes in knowledge of what we're going to do passively. It's not that God just knows what we're going to do or God simply knows that we're going to exist. It is an active way of saying God in eternity past set His electing love upon you in a very special way. 1 Peter 1, 1-2 through two. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I mean, you see all three persons of the Trinity there, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it's we were elect, we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. So, the first thing in eternity past, now again, God is outside of time, so we think of this sequentially, it's more theologically. The first thing God did to us before we were ever born, before the world was ever created, before we were ever in existence, God not just simply knew that you would be born. God just didn't knew, know that you would exist. God didn't look down the corridors of time and see that you would choose Him. And based upon what God saw, He chooses you. No, God set His electing love upon you. He foreknew you. That's the first chain in the golden chain. Okay? Now let's keep going. For those whom He foreknew, what did He also do? He also predestined them to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Okay, so chain number two. This is a different verb. What was the first chain? God foreknew. Those whom He foreknew, He also what? Predestined. So here's chain number two. Those God foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. So let's stop and ask, what in the world does that mean? we got a lot of things going on here. First of all, what does it mean to be predestined? And then what does it mean to be predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son? Okay. What does it mean to be predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ? Okay. We can, I, I think you can take this two ways. I take it two ways. I think, I think you can make a case for both of these. Okay. So, so first of all, let's just talk about what does it mean to be conformed to the image of Christ? Let's, let me just put it in very simple terms. God had a plan that you would, in some way, look like, be like Christ. That's what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ. That you, God's, God in eternity past had a plan that you would be like Jesus in some way. Okay, so we have to ask a question. In what way did God predestine us to be like Jesus, to be conformed to His image? I think you can take that in two ways. I think you can take it in a sanctification way. 
And what I mean by that is that God's eternal plan for us as believers is that while we're alive on this earth is that we progressively look more and more like Jesus as we grow in holiness. This takes place throughout our lives as the Holy Spirit does His work of transformation. So this is a great promise. A great promise to you. You may look at your life right now and think, I don't look like Jesus. I'm not growing the way I want to grow. I'm not making progress the way I want to make progress in my Christian life. What is God's plan for you that He predestined in eternity past? For you to look like Jesus. So as every day as you live your life, the Holy Spirit's working in you to look more and more like Jesus. That's why 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Present tense, we're, we're being transformed, we're being conformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord whose Spirit. So, one way you can take what God predestined for you to do is that God predestined for you in your daily life to look more and more like Jesus. But there's a final way you can take it. I think this is probably the primary way this passage should be taken. And this relates to what we call glorification. And we'll talk a little bit more about glorification. But here's what is God's plan. God's eternal plan for us as believers is to be resurrected to new life with glorified bodies like Jesus to live with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. So what, is God's, what did God predestine for you to do? Experience a resurrection like Jesus. Okay. Now how do I know that? Because what did we look back at in verse... Oh, go back to verse 11, chapter 8, verse 11. We're still in chapter 8. This is one big, long chapter. If the Spirit of whom raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Holy Spirit who dwells in you. We will have new life and new resurrected bodies. And then what are we waiting for? Look at verse 23. Not only the creation is groaning, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Resurrected bodies. Now, how do I even know that even further? What does the rest of verse 29 say? We are conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. Does this mean that Jesus was born before us? The firstborn, the first fruits. Okay, let me just ask you a question. Who was the first to raise from the dead with a glorified body? Jesus. He's the first one to do that. Did Jesus get a glorified, resurrected body when he rose? Okay. Is he in heaven right now with that glorified, resurrected body? Will we get a glorified, resurrected body? Will we get to live in heaven with Him with a glorified, resurrected body? Okay, so in that way, we will be like Him, right? We won't be Jesus, but we will be conformed to His image because we will experience a resurrection with a new body similar to what He did. But He was the first one that had to go through it. So Christ is the firstborn. He's the firstfruits in that He's the Son of God who was raised 
paving the way for us to follow and be raised on that final day. That is glorification. Glorification is the theological term for our final resurrected bodies living finally in the new heavens and the new earth. It's eternity. Okay? So God predestined for us to be resurrected on that final day to ultimately be like Jesus. Not only is that happening now through sanctification, but it will happen one day. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.20 But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's the firstfruits. He rose first. And then in Philippians 3.20-21, it says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So let's just talk about two things that have happened so far. In eternity past, before the foundation of the world, God specifically, particularly set his love upon you. And not only that, he predestined you to be like Jesus to have a resurrection like Jesus, to be in a glorified body like Jesus. So let's ask the question, well, then what's the difference then? What's the difference between God foreknowing and God predestining? Is there a difference between the two? Because there's two words there. There is a difference. Let me just give you the difference. God foreknowing His people in eternity past means that He set His electing love on them in covenant relationship. It speaks more of choosing of sinners to be saved. God loved us. God chose us to be saved. God's predestining speaks more about the destination or the destiny. It means that in eternity past, His preordained plan will certainly and infallibly come to pass in accordance with His sovereign will. And that destiny that God's predestined us to is to ultimately look like Jesus. Okay? So, you've got the word, though, and then let's go into verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. So, the word predestined is in the Bible there twice. Now, over the years, I have had people come to me and say, I don't believe in predestination. And I say, well, okay, let's, let's just stop and let, let's say, okay, it's in the Bible you see the word right there. So the question is not, does the Bible teach predestination? The question is, how does God predestine? What's the basis for the predestination? How does it work out? And we'll get to that in just a moment. But what I want to talk about is just basic question. Does the Bible teach that God sovereignly chose or predestined certain individuals to be saved? And if you say, no, I've got about 10 verses for you. So right here it says, He predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son, those whom He predestined. So let's go all the way back to the Old Testament. And this is obviously speaking of Israel, how, why God chose Israel, but I think it can relate to us as well. Deuteronomy 7, 6-8 God says to Israel, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. 
out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other peoples that He, Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. Okay, let's just stop right there. Why did God choose and set His love on Israel? Is the answer there? Was there a reason that God did it? Well, was that why God did it, or is that what God made them to be? Were they holy before God chose them, or did God, did God make them holy after He chose them? Why did God choose Israel? Because He wanted to. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 8, why did God do all this? Because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What, I'm, what this passage of Scripture is saying is this. There is nothing in Israel that moved God to choose Israel. It wasn't because they had a stellar reputation. It wasn't because they had their act together. It wasn't because Moses... As a matter of fact, how did Israel start? With who? Abraham. Who was Abraham? He was a moon worshiper living on the backside of Iraq. And God showed up to him out of the blue. So was, Mo, was Abraham even searching for God? Was Abraham worthy? No, he was a pagan. God chose him to start the nation of Israel. So there was, no, there was nothing in Israel that moved God to choose Israel. On the same token, was there anything in us that moved God to choose us? No. Okay. What did Jesus say in Matthew eleven twenty seven? We'll, we'll come back to this in just a moment. Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So how is anybody ever going to get saved unless Jesus chooses to reveal Himself? Okay. The question you have to ask is, does that happen to everybody? John 5.21 for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Okay? Now, we looked at this last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. We talked about call, when we talked about calling, we're going to talk about it again. But John 6, 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Which means what? The Father has given a people to Jesus. And will those people come? Okay, they will. So the Father chose, the Father predestined, the Father elected a particular group of people in eternity past, gave those people to Jesus as a love gift, and those people in time will come to Him. Now you have to ask the question, why do some people not come to Jesus? Yes. <laughs> why do some people not come to Jesus? They were not chosen. They were not predestined, okay? Now, Jesus says this in John chapter 10. 
John 10, 25-30, he's talking to the Pharisees. He says, Jesus answered them. These are the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees. He says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. Listen carefully. What does Jesus say? Why are they not believing? They're not, they're not, I'm hearing different things here. Why did they not believe? They're not part of a sheep. Now, what do you think Jesus would have said? The reason you're not believing is because you're not believing. It's up to you whether you believe or not believe. What's the reason why they're not believing? Jesus doesn't say specifically they weren't chosen. He says, you're not among my sheep. Okay, but let's go, let's, let's go. You're, you're, Pharisees, you're in a group over here that's not my sheep. So let's ask the question. If you're not a sheep, what does that make you? A goat. Okay. So Jesus says, you're not part of my flock. You're not part of my people. And the reason why you're not believing is because you're not part of my people. If you were part of my people, you would be believing. Now, how do we know that? Let's keep reading. My sheep, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one's able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Who, what will the sheep do when Jesus calls the sheep? They will follow. Why? Because they're, so do you follow to become a sheep or are you a sheep and then you follow because you're a sheep. You follow because... What comes first, being a sheep or following? Being a sheep. Or let's put it in a different language. Do you come to Christ because you come to Christ, or do you come to Christ because you were chosen to come to Christ? You were, you were chosen to come to Christ. Okay. Um, uh, just John eight forty seven. We'll skip over that because that's just another statement of Jesus saying that they're not part of his flock. Now, let's get into some New Testament passages besides the Gospels that teach specifically this doctrine of predestination and election. Okay? Cuz I I just want you I I want I want to show you so you can see with your own eyes that the Bible does teach this. That when you when, when sometimes people hear the word predestination they get a little scared, they get a little uncomfortable, they they're not quite sure what it means. What I'm trying to show you is the word, the word predestined, the word chose, the word elect, those words show up in the Bible. So you've got to deal with what they mean. You can't just gloss over and say, I don't want to deal with what they mean. You've got to make a decision on what they mean. You can't just ignore them. If you're going to be good Bible students, you've got to, you've got to deal with it. So Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, this was Paul preaching, when they heard this, the gospel they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Why did they believe? They were appointed to what? Were they appointed to believe? They were appointed to eternal life. So what was the reason that they believed in the gospel? What came first, the believing or the being appointed? What caused the believing? Being appointed. Being, so the question is, okay, what does it mean to be appointed? Does anybody have a different translation besides appointed? 
Um, the reason I ask is because some people that don't particularly like the doctrine of God's sovereign election, they will, they will translate this differently. They'll say that word appoint means that the person predisposed themselves to believe. They predisposed themselves to believe. But that's not even what the text says. Does the text say they predisposed themselves to believe? No, it says they were appointed not to believe. They were appointed to eternal life. They were chosen to eternal life in eternity past. And because God chose them or appointed them to eternal life, when the gospel came to them at a point in time, that's why they believed. The appoint there is interesting. That word appoint. There's been some papyrus, which are some ancient scrolls, that actually that word can also mean to enroll or write down in a book. Like the book of life. So we could say it this way. Those who were appointed, those who were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, believe. So you have to deal with this text. Why did they believe? According to this text, because they were appointed, chosen. Okay? Now, let's go to some very clear passages in Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Okay, you've got the word chose and you've got the word predestined there. Who chose who? He chose us. When did it happen? Before the foundation of the world. That we should be What? Holy and blameless, which assumes what? We were not holy and blameless, so God had to, to choose us to be holy and blameless. He predestined us for adoption. What is adoption? Being into God's family. And what, this was all according to what? The purpose of His will. Then you go down into verse 11, Ephesians 1.11. In Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So He predestined us according to, all th to the counsel of His will. So we were appointed to... So let's, let's look at these scriptures. All that the Father gives me will come. God foreknew us. God predestined us. God appointed us. God chose us. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-5. For we know, brothers, beloved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. How did Paul know they were chosen? How do you know you're chosen? Verse 5 gives you the answer. There's a because there. Did the gospel come to you? Was the gospel preached to you? Did you, did you? Were you convicted? Did you believe the gospel? Okay, so let me ask you a question. How do you know you're chosen? Simple answer. I believed in Jesus. <laughs> I believed. Okay? 
2 Thessalonians 2, 13-14. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you when? From the beginning. For what? Salvation through sanctification by the spirit of faith and in truth. It was for this He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what came first? Being called and hearing the gospel or being chosen? Chosen. Why did they believe the truth? Because they were chosen. Okay. And that word Paul uses there for choose is very interesting. It means, it's a unique word in the original language. It really means that God God took great pleasure to choose you, to bring you to himself. Okay, just two more verses here. 2 Timothy 1, 8-9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works done by, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages began. When did God give us that grace? Before the ages began. And then one last verse, Revelation 13, 18, 13, 8, I'm sorry. All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Who's, when were your names written in the Lamb's book of life? before the foundation of the world. Okay. Now, here's the issue. All evangelical Christians believe that there are those who are saved and there are those who are lost. And all evangelicals, if they're honest with the Bible, believe God predestines. God chooses. Question then becomes, okay, how does God do that? What's the basis for the choosing? Which view are you going to hold to? So in fairness, I'm going to present three views. Okay, obviously, our confession of faith is a church and what we believe is one view, but there are two other views out there that you may not be familiar with, but I want to expose them to you. Um, the first view is what we've, and I'm going to give labels to this because there's, there's no other way but to give labels to them because historically there's, there's been labels. Um, there's what I would call the traditional Arminian foreknowledge view. Uh, this comes from um, a lot of the church fathers. The early church believed this. Um, it was believed by the Roman Catholic Church. It's believed by Arminius, by uh, John Wesley. And, and here's, the, here's the foreknowledge view of the traditional Arminian. Uh, the reason that some were not chosen is because God foresaw they would not choose and thus let them use their free will to reject Christ. Or on the flip side, so what this view says is God foreknows what you're going to do. So let me give you an example. It's 1984 and little Sally is at Vacation Bible School. And it's the last day of VBS and this is back before they had the Evangel Cubes and things we use. But the, the gospel's presented to Sally. And she gets on her knees, and in 1984 at Vacation Bible School, she trusts Christ for salvation. 
she becomes a Christian in 1984. The traditional Arminian foreknowledge view would say in eternity past, God knew that moment would come. God saw that moment happen. God had knowledge of Sally using her free will to trust in Christ for salvation. When God saw that, when God saw her choosing Jesus, trusting Christ, in eternity past, God made the choice to choose her or to ratify her decision. If God saw Johnny, let's say Johnny's the same age and he's at VBS and he doesn't trust Christ for salvation, and Johnny lives his entire life never trusting in Christ, and God knows about that, God has knowledge, and God sees that, God simply doesn't choose Johnny because Johnny never chose. So in the traditional Arminian foreknowledge view, libertarian free will is the, um, the higher value that basically the reason that, you're, that you get chosen is because God saw you using your free will. It's called conditional election in the sense that you met the conditions required to be elected. And what were those conditions that had to be met? You had to place your faith in Christ. You had to use your free will. You had to believe. And once God saw that, He chose you based upon that. That is predestination, but that's the Arminian view of predestination. It's one view of it. It's, it's called the foreknowledge view of predestination. It's called, in traditional, it would be called conditional election. And the reason why it's called conditional election, God still elects, God still chooses, you, but it's conditional in the sense that God has to foresee some conditions being met. And those conditions have to be you using your faith you using your free will, you choosing. And then once, the, once God sees that, you've met the conditions for Him to choose you. Now again, this happens before time. It's not like it's happening in time. God and how it all works out with God's foreknowledge and omniscience, all the views believe it happened before time in eternity past. Does that make sense, Nancy? It, I mean, you, you're, you're free to believe that if that's, the, if that's the view you want to have. Let me just give you a, let me just ask a very simple question because it comes to calling. And we'll get there in just a moment, but I want to go ahead and ask it now. If you hold that humans are totally depraved and no one can come to the Father and that you're spiritually unable to come without God's assistance, if God looks down and sees, would He ever see anybody using their free will to come to faith without Him doing some type of intervention? Probably not. Okay, so the foreknowledge view says that, yes, God chooses, but God chooses based upon what you did first. Like you're, I don't want to use the word you're the prime mover, but you're more in the driver's seat there. God is still contingent upon your decision, whether He elects you or not. Or doesn't elect you. Okay. Now, the second view, I don't want to get into a lot of this because there are, um, it's a fairly, um, I don't want to say it's a new view, but it's, it's a view that I've, that I've come to um, understand in the recent years through interactions on Facebook and podcasts and some people that I've, I've debated with and talked with, and that's what we call corporate election. 
This may be totally new to you. You may have never heard of corporate election. Um, so it's a little bit different. It's not traditional Arminian foreknowledge. Okay? So let me explain the best I can um, the, the, the corporate view of election. Okay? So again, all of these things take place before time because it has to be based upon Ephesians 1. But in the corporate view of election, God chose a conglomerate group called the elect. There's this group called the elect, this group called Christians, this group called the church. And it was in Christ, and God chose that there would be a church, there would be Christians. And so in time, when presented the gospel, you can choose to accept or reject Jesus based upon your free will. And if you accept Christ, then at that moment that you accept Christ, you're placed into that group that was chosen before time, the elect. So there's no individual election unto salvation before time. It's more of a God chose Christ as the representative. God chose that there would be a church, there would be Christians, and people populate that every time they become a Christian. They populate that group. So the group was predestined, but you individually weren't predestined. The group was. When you hear the gospel and you choose to get into the group, then you become one of the elect. Where's that in the Bible? They go to Ephesians chapter 1, what we looked at, 4 and 5. They would say God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, meaning that it's not individuals that were chosen. It's the group was chosen in Christ. And then they go down to verse, I think, 11, 12, 13. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you were marked in Christ. Then you got into Christ when you used your free will to get into it. It's a little confusing. Um, and so, in fairness, there's the traditional Arminian foreknowledge view, there's the corporate election view, and then there's the reform view or the unconditional view, which obviously is the one we hold as a church that basically says there are no conditions that had to be met by the sinner in order for God to choose. God chose because God chose, and He did it based upon His sovereign will. What's one thing we can say? Oftentimes people ask, why did God do it that way or why did God choose? And the answer I'd say is God chose because it was His will to do so. But I can tell you why God didn't choose. Did God choose us because we deserve to be chosen? Did God choose us because we had a good resume spiritually? In God's mind, we were totally depraved and fallen in Adam, and none of us deserved to be chosen. So God chose a great number that no man can count to be saved and foreknew those people before the foundation of the world, set His electing love on those people, chose and predestined those people according to the purpose of His will. Okay. I want to stop right there before we get to chain number three because predestination tends to bring up a lot of issues. Yes, yes, Dennis. So the, on the corporate one, it still, still says there at the bottom, still based upon free will. Yes. So this particular group or the elect was chosen, and then it's based on then they accept or reject. Yeah. You're and still, kind of a, well, you're, in the corporate view, you're still using your free will to get in. 
But once you use your free will to get in, you become part of the elect that was chosen in eternity past. Well, this is not as popular a view as what the the corporate view is not as popular, but it's becoming a little bit popular, and especially um, I'm seeing it become a little bit more popular. Um, it was the view of um, Herschel Hobbes, who was kind of a Southern Baptist statesman in the 60s and 70s. Um, and so it's relatively new in church history. I would make the argument, um, I think the corporate view of election goes back really to um, a French guy, Pierre Marie, in the 1940s, who influenced Karl Barth, who wrote Church Dogmatics in the 1950s. And, and then it gained traction in like the late 70s and 80s. And there's been a few guys, Klein's written a book on it. Um, and, and so I would say the corporate view of election is a fairly new view within evangelical circles. And I think it's gaining more traction because they don't want to be Reformed Calvinists that believe in unconditional election, but they're also not traditional Arminians that believe in the foreseen faith. So it's kind of like... It's their understanding of, of Ephesians chapter 1, more of a corporate view. Have I totally confused you guys? Are you ready to move on? Any other questions on election or predestination? Well, can I just say something? Yeah, you can say, you can say something. You can say something, Nancy. Not to believe. Okay. You can predestine people to believe and to not believe. So. Uh, okay. I, that's a good question. So, no. L- let me answer that. This is not in your notes. So this is this is. We're going to get into the deep end of the. Are you guys okay getting into a little bit of the deep end of the water here? Okay. So. Um, let's just put two words on here. Election. What's the opposite of election? Non, let's just say non-election, okay? I'll, I won't use the word that is traditionally used, but which, is, which is often called reprobation. Okay. So election, non-election. Okay, let's, let's assume from a starting point, where do all humans start? Okay, let me ask it a different way. What's the condition of all humans from birth? Okay, so everybody's a sinner, right? Everybody is dead in sin, right? No one seeks God. Our minds are hostile to God. No one can come. That's the condition of every single person, right? Like you said, depraved. Okay, depraved. Okay. Now, if left to yourself... As you go through your entire life, would you ever believe? Or could you ever believe? No. You wouldn't believe and you couldn't believe. So something has to happen to you to make you believe. What does God do? Okay, so election is active, okay? God chose, God predestined, 
These are things that God did. Okay. Now, to, the, to those he doesn't choose, God's not actively working in them to make them sinful. Why? They're already sinful. So what God does with these, instead of intervening in choosing and predestining, God, we can use the word, he leaves them or he passes over them. He doesn't have to do anything to them because basically left to themselves, they would never choose him in the first place. So God just passed. So God doesn't actively, God doesn't actively predestine someone to hell. God actively predestines people for salvation. The rest he simply leaves in the state they would have been had God not intervened. Does that make sense, Nancy? So what's the... Right, and the problem, the problem is, okay, what's the big problem here? Let's just, the elephant in the room, what's the big, what's the big word? That's not fair, right? I mean, let, let's be honest. Anytime you talk about predestination and election, the issue of fairness comes up. And there's no answer for that, Janae. There's no answer as to why. It's not because you were better and they weren't. Because everybody starts equally depraved. Okay? So, every if we start from the premise that everybody deserves hell and God's not obligated to be fair, then you start with the premise that God owes no one salvation. So for God, let's say God created Adam and Eve. And let's just say for the sake of, let's just say for the sake of argument, not this happened, but Adam and Eve both sinned. They're both equally guilty, right? Does God have to save either one of them? What if God chose Adam over Eve or Eve over Adam? Does God have to, does God discriminate? Oh, I say, does God chose Eve and not Adam? Okay, so does God have to choose Adam? Does God have to choose Eve? The fact that he chooses one or the other, does that mean that he's being unfair? Because what do they both deserve? Right, so God's, is God ever unjust in not choosing everybody? Is he unjust? Is it in? That's when, when you have the question as to where you, in your perspective as a human, you think that's not fair. It's not fair. Okay. That's where you get. Okay. So let's 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 put three categories up here. Let's put three words up here. Let's put justice. Let's put injustice. And let's put, I'll, I'll, I'll fill in the blank. Okay, so what is justice? Getting what you deserve. 
what's injust or what's unjustice or injustice? God actually doing something that's not right or doing something that's evil or unjust. Does God ever act unjustly? No. So can we cross that off? God never acts unjustly. Okay. Does God act justly? And if God were to act justly, what does that mean? He has to give people what they deserve. Okay. So there's two opposites of justice. One opposite of justice is injustice. That's what we think of. The opposite of justice is God's committed an injustice. Okay. But can there be another opposite of justice? What's another opposite of justice? Can we call it non-justice? Or not getting justice? We don't call, what do we call not, not getting justice? What's the word we use? Mercy. Okay. So God is never unjust in what he does. God has every right to be just in what he does. So for God to choose mercy when he could have chose justice, he's not doing any injustice. He's actually acting in mercy. The question then becomes, okay, is God obligated to show mercy to everyone? Is God obligated to do it? If God's obligated, what does that mean? You deserve mercy. Okay, what do we deserve? Justice. Could God give everybody justice? Meaning, nobody would be saved. Could God give everybody mercy? Meaning, everybody would be saved. What do we know from the Bible and from experience? Does, does everybody get justice? Does everybody get mercy? Some get justice, some get mercy. Okay, the question then becomes, okay, who's in charge of that? Our view would say God's in charge of who gets that. Others would say you're, you can choose to get into that however you want to use your, your free will. Does that make sense? I know you struggle with this, Nancy. And it's a struggle. It's, it's, an, emotional, it's an emotional struggle. Right. Okay. Let me challenge your... Th- let me, so you said... Say it again. Because I got the hooligans over Okay. If God does not choose you, you're going to spend eternity in hell. Okay. Now, let's look at the Arminian view, the free will view. Okay. Does God know you're not going to choose him? If, you, if it's up to you to choose, and God knows that, and He lets you not choose Him, and He knows you're not going to choose Him, and He saw it before the foundation of the world, and He lets you not go through your life and not choose Him, then what's happening? You're still... Okay, it's your free will to do it, but could God not have intervened and overridden your free will if He really wanted you to be saved? I mean, the point, the point is, either way, you don't get God off the hook because God created you knowing that you would never trust Him and let you go to hell anyway by having you be created when He could have either, one, not had you created, or two, d- d- over, overrode your free will to get you to go to heaven. Does that make sense? So really, no view gets God off the hook if you believe God has knowledge of all things. 
I'm just, I'm making you think tonight, guys, because I've had these objections come up a lot over the years. Are you guys ready to move off of predestination? And Okay. Chain number three. We're back in Romans. Chain number three. Those God predestined, he also called. Okay, do you see it there? We're back in verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Okay. When did God, when did God foreknow us? When did that happen? Before time. When did God predestine us? Okay. When did God call you? At a point in time. Okay. Okay. And we talked a little bit about this last week, and we'll, we'll talk about it again. There are two types of calls that the Bible talks about. There's the outward universal call of the gospel. This is when I stand up on a Sunday morning and I preach outwardly and everybody hears it. Or when you share the gospel. It's the verbal outward call with words of the gospel. But there's also the inward effective call, the effectual calling that goes inside the heart that actually produces something. Okay, So let's just give you the definition of the outward call. Uh, the outward gospel calls the offering of salvation in Christ to all people, together with an invitation to trust Christ in repentance and faith, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. So let me ask you a question. When you share the gospel, when you go into a tribal village in an unknown place across the world that we can't mention on Facebook, or when I stand up on Sunday morning, do we have any idea who God has predestined? You know what Charles Spurgeon said? He said, man, it would be, this is, I'm quoting him from the 1860s, 70s London. It would be really nice if everybody who was elect had a white stripe down their back. Then I would go through London and I would lift up their stripe and I would only preach to them because I knew that they would come to faith in Christ. <laughs> But he says, it'd be easier, right? The point is, we do not know the identity of the elect. And we were, are never told that we will know this information. You are never told to go out and share the gospel and say this. You, have you ever heard me say this on a Sunday morning? All right, everybody out there. If you are among the elect, please listen to my invitation. If you're not among the elect... Tune out what I have to say because it doesn't matter to you anyway. Have you ever heard me say that? You, you what? Don't even, come to don't even come to church. So what do we do? Because we don't know the identity of the elect and we're never told that, what we're told to do is to tell, invite, urge, plead, and call every single person from every tribe, tongue, language, and people group to come to Christ for salvation. We extend the gospel call universally. That's the outward call, which leads to a question. Here's the question. If the gospel call goes out universally, that means it goes out to everybody, then why do some people accept it and others do not? There's two answers, okay? Is it an issue of using free will to accept or reject the call? Or is there another type of calling that overpowers the most resistant of hearts and causes a sinner to come to faith in Christ? Okay. So let me show you where Jesus is, gets really confusing. 
in Matthew eleven twenty five through 30. Okay, this is the words of Jesus. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to be my, my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Okay. You see the outward call of the gospel coming from Jesus' lips. What does he say in verse 28? Come to me all. Does that sound like a universal invitation? Everybody who's heavy laden, everyone who's burdened, everyone who's under a load of sin, come to me and you will find rest for your souls. Come to me. Jesus says, come to me. I can stand up and say, come to Jesus. If you're a sinner and you're under the guilt of your sin, come to Jesus. Okay? At the same time, just right before he says that in verse 27, what does Jesus say? I'm in charge of who gets to have that message given to them who the son chooses to reveal to him so there's an invitation for all but yet there's a restriction on who will actually come so when the call goes out what does the effectual calling produce in other words let me ask it a different way how can a person who's dead in sin and who lacks the ability to come to Christ, how can they accept the call and repent of their sins and trust in Christ? Or let me ask it another way. Why? Or let me ask it this way. Who gets called? Does everybody get called? Who gets called? Look at your verse. It's a chain, right? Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. So the question is, who gets called? Only those that are predestined. Now, does that mean that outwardly only the predestined get called? No, outwardly everybody gets called. But there's an inward call that's to those who've been predestined that's actually going to do something in their heart to bring them to faith. So what does God have to do to those whom he's predestined? Just because God has predestined you, does that mean that you're automatically saved? How are you born? Even though you, you're predestined, how are you born? Dead in sin, a sinner. What has to happen to you? Just because you're predestined, you still have to what? Believe in Jesus. You still have to hear the gospel. So the point is, God chose you in eternity past, but that's not automatic. It doesn't mean you're automatically saved. There has to come a point in time where the call goes to you, and the call will come to you. Now, God's sovereign moving over how the call gets to you and when it gets to you and how all that happens. But when it happens, God does that work in your heart. Okay? So let's look at some of these verses that talk about what the call does in your heart. When God calls you, what happens in your heart? What happens in your life? Um, yeah, the Holy Spirit does the work. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from the heart of flesh. 
and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What happens when the call comes? God gives you a new heart. John 1, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How did you become a children of God? You were born not of blood, nor the will of man, nor the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. God was the one that caused you to be born again. John 6.65, you would never have come, Jesus said. That's why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. The Father has to grant you the, the ability to come. Acts 16.14, one of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Who opened whose heart? The Lord opened her heart. And what happened when the Lord opened her heart? She responded, okay? 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So consider your calling. Why were you called? Because God chose you. And there's no room to boast. Okay, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. I know these are shotgun verses. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Who made whom alive? God made us alive. Okay, 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So, what's the order? God foreknew you in that He set His electing love upon you. He predestined you to be conformed to the image of Christ that you would be saved. At a point in time, God called you. And when God called you, He opened your heart. He gave you new life. He caused you to be born again. He gave you what you needed in order to believe. What did you need in order to believe? Faith. Is the faith that you had to believe even your own faith? Or is it a gift? It's a gift. Okay. So what biblical texts show us that the Spirit does indeed give us the gifts of both repentance and faith? Okay. Acts 5.31 God exalted him in his right hand as leader and servant to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. To give repentance. Repentance has to be given. Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God granted repentance that leads to life. They had to be granted repentance as a gift. And then Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. It was granted for you to believe. And then James 1.18, Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Okay. So here's the chain. In eternity past, God foreknew you. In eternity past, God predestined you. At a point in time, God called you. You could not say no to that call. He made you alive. He regenerated you in that call. He gave you the gifts of repentance and faith in that call. What happens when you believe in Jesus? 
What's the, what's the fourth thing in the chain? What does it say there? Chain number four. Those whom he called, he also justified. Okay? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on justification because we spend a lot of time on that. But that's also at a point in time. So you have to be called, regenerated, given the gifts of faith and repentance. And when you exercise faith, then you're justified. Okay? Just real briefly, um, we, for the sake of time, we won't go back and look at those passages because we spent so much time on justification. But we know that justification is what? Being declared not guilty on account of Christ's righteousness being credited to you and your sins being credited to Him. Okay. So here's the question that we have to keep asking. Is everybody foreknown? Is everybody foreknown? Because those whom He foreknew, He also what? Predestined. Is everybody predestined? No, because then is everybody called? Because if everybody's called, everybody would be justified. Is everybody justified? You see how it's a chain? Yes, Tiffany. Well, the, the Mormons ruining that. Are they ruining? I would say, are they ruining a lot of things? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They the the Mormons doing the baptism for the dead is like a weird doctrine to make sure that because they believe you have to be baptized in order to be saved, right? Yes. So if somebody died in your family that wasn't sa- baptized, then they may not be at that level in, in heaven or their own planet. So just to make sure, you have to go back and be baptized by proxy on their behalf to make sure that after they're dead, they can kind of get to where they need to go. Did they ever tell you that, guys, when you were in Mormon church? No. Okay. I'm glad you guys became Christians and got baptized in our church. Okay. All right. So, so justification took, point in a place, took place at a point in time. Okay. Look at all these verbs, guys and gals. What tense are the verbs? Past tense. Those, okay, predestination took place when? Past, forenoon past. You were called when? At a point in time. You were justified. Now, what's the last one there? He also, okay, glorified. Now, that's interesting. It's in the past tense. What does glorified mean? That means we get our new bodies, right? We live in heaven with a resurrected body. So question, has that happened yet? So why, is Paul just like not very good at grammar? Past tense, past tense, past tense, and all of a sudden I'm just using past tense, so I'm going to, why does Paul speak of something that hasn't happened yet as if it's already happened? Hmm. Okay. Why does Paul speak as though it has happened even though it's not happened? Because predestination's happened, right? Callings happened, right? Justification's happened, right? But has glorification happened yet? Okay. What is glorification? It's the redemption of our bodies. Okay? 1 Corinthians 15, 50-52, this is what it means to be glorified. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in the moment. 
In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. That's glorification. The, the last trumpet, the twinkling of an eye, we are resurrected with our brand new glorified bodies. That's a future thing, right? Okay. So theologically, why does Paul use the past tense for something that hasn't happened yet? Let me tell you why I think he does this and why most scholars would think this. Paul used the past tense to show that in God's mind and according to his divine decree, those whom he predestined, those whom he called, those whom he justified are as good as glorified as a future reality, even though it hasn't happened yet, because God will ensure our redemption on that final day. Understand that? In other words, in God's mind, it's a done deal. It hasn't happened yet, because think about it this way. Okay, think about it this way. If God predestined you in eternity past and God called you and God regenerated you and God saved you and God justified you and that's all God did and then, okay, you better, better, better tell the line to make to the end to make sure that you get to heaven. The glorification's up to you. No. In God's mind, what, what Paul's saying is from eternity past to eternity future and everything in between, it's a done deal in God's mind. He has used this before in Ephesians 2, 5 through 7. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us. Is that past tense? With Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show future the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. When God saved us, He seated us in the heavenlies. Are you seated there right now? In God's mind, are you seated right there with Him? Okay. Physically, spatially, are you there? But in God's mind, it's a done deal, right? So in God's mind, it's a done deal that you're already going to receive your glorified body. So from eternity past to eternity future, God sovereignly ordained and planned out to the most minute detail your salvation. That's why Paul says in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. When did God begin that good work in you? Well, you could say, the day I got saved, or you could say God began that good work in eternity past when He chose me. Will He bring it to completion? Yes. Now, I spent all day making this handy-dandy chart. No, no, I did make this chart for you guys today, and I want to I give you, I'm, I'm going to pass this chart out. It's, it's, it's a visual way of looking at the golden chain. So let me hand those out to you guys. So it's just kind of a visual way to look at it, that all of these five theological truths tie together in one chain. You can't break the chain. You can't break up the chain. What God started in eternity past, He's going to carry on to eternity future and everything in between. Okay, so... Let's just kind of look at, let's look across here. What I've done is I've given you the, the chains, I've given you the definition, and I've given you the verses we looked at tonight. Okay, so four new. Before creation, God in covenant love chose a particular people to be saved based upon no merit of their own, but merely upon His free grace to do so. And I gave you some verses there that you can look up. Okay. Predestined. 
Before creation, God ordained that those same people would be adopted into his family by grace. This predestination is infallible and will most certainly happen. Called. At a point in time, God effectually, inwardly, and sovereignly called those same people by regenerating them and granting them saving faith. As those dead in sin, they would not come to faith in Christ without God's irresistible call. Justified. Those same people God legally declared not guilty based upon the righteousness of Christ credited to them. This new and permanent standing as forgiven and righteous came by faith alone in Jesus. And then glorified. In the future, God will grant those same people a glorified and resurrected body to live forever in the new heavens and earth. In God's mind, this is, quote, as good as done. So there visually is the golden chain, and I will stick this up here for the people on the screen to see. The golden chain of redemption. And I guess if you're watching on Facebook and you want a copy of that, I can send it to you in a PDF. But basically it's just um, what, I'm, what I'm handing out to the, to the students here in the class. Kind of see that. So I want to just bring this to a close, and then we'll have some time for questions. What should... What should this golden chain of redemption produce in you? I've got four things, probably more. One, it should produce in us gratitude. Did God have to do any of this? No. It should produce gratitude in us that God would foreknow us and predestine us and call us and justify us and and one day glorify us. It should also produce not only gratitude but awe. God is pretty powerful that He can do this to someone like me. And then it should also lead to humility. God didn't have to do this to me. I should never boast in this. I should never think I'm deserving of this. I should never think I'm better than anybody else. Um, There have been times when I have prayed in my personal devotional times and I've said something to God like this, Father, today I thank You for saving me because You did not have to save me. And if you had passed me over and not saved me, you would have done me no wrong. And then assurance. Why does this give you assurance? If God started an eternity past, will He not carry it on to eternity future? God has sovereignly decided to save you from first to last. And He doesn't leave it up to you not in your hands it's in God's hands and you may not like that some people don't like that they want to have it in their hands but if it comes to your ultimate salvation I would rather have it be in God's hands because I know that his hands are powerful and he'll never let me go and what he started by foreknowing me predestining calling justifying one day glorifying I can have the assurance that God has done everything necessary in totality to to bring about my salvation So that's the golden chain of redemption. Two verses. We didn't get very far tonight, but there's a lot of depth in those two verses. Questions, comments, clarifications, condemnations, assumptions, commendations, accusations, prognostications. How much time do we have left here? We have nine minutes. You're speechless. I mean, 
I think it's meant to leave you a little speechless. Um, so maybe there are no questions. Maybe you just need to think tonight about God's grace in your life. So if there's no questions, let me just pray for us, and then we'll be, we'll be done. Father, we thank you for this golden chain. Uh, we know that there's nothing in us that moved you to do these things for us. It wasn't because we were worthy or we merited it. It was simply your sheer grace alone and your purpose. And so, Father, thank you for setting your love upon us in eternity past. Thank you for predestining us to be conformed to the image of Jesus. What a powerful truth that is. Thank you for calling us out of darkness into life, giving us new life, causing us to be born again. Lord, thank you for justifying us, taking our sins away, forgiving us, giving us that righteous standing, that permanent standing. And Lord, thank you that in your mind, it's as good as done, that we're going to be glorified on that final day to receive our resurrected bodies. And so I'm so thankful that this whole passage ties together, that you work out all things for good. And, and Lord, what awesome things these are for our good, the totality of our salvation. So we worship you tonight. Help us to be humble. Help us to be in awe. Help us to just be uh, so thankful for your sovereign grace in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.